Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Sea date, February 12th, 2023, 11.39 GMT. I've been very lax in keeping a log on this trip. This is my Atlantic crossing in 2023. So I'm going to go back in time and try to remember the big events of the, um, of the trip and share them and possibly write this down later on. So I'm going to refer to my written log for some notes and then try to go from memory from other things. First of all, we arrived in Malaga. I left Salt Lake City on January 3rd, 2023. Arrived in Malaga Airport on... Well, actually, that was a fiasco. When I went to the airport, I used United Miles to book my flight. I booked it months before, and they had no record of my flight. I had a confirmation, printed it out. United did not have any indication of my flight. Fortunately, after about an hour on the phone with the people, they put me on another flight, flew to Houston. By that time, it was too late to make my connecting flight to Malaga. So I spent a night in Houston and caught the flight from Houston to Frankfurt the next day and then from Frankfurt down to Malaga. So I arrived on January 5th in Malaga. And then, of course, they lost my bags, so my bags did not arrive with me. So now we have to deal with that. Dave Harris and Bill Wiebe were my crew members. They had flown over to Portugal a few days earlier and spent some time traveling around. And Bill's luggage had been lost as well. Bill had flown from... Alaska down to Seattle, Seattle over to Portugal, and somehow his luggage was lost. So our first big task of the trip was to gather up our luggage and try to continue on from there. My luggage arrived several days later. They delivered it out to Almiramar. Actually, we had a rental car. We met him at a El Hito, El El Hito. And uh, they transferred. Bill's luggage took several transatlantic trips across and back and across and back. And finally, his his luggage arrived literally, I think I'll give you the exact date, but days, days later, after it already departed from Almiramar. So we get to Almiramar, we're doing work on the boat, we take the cover off the boat, we have a Airbnb to stay in while we're doing work on the boat and it was very difficult to find the Airbnb location. The person that was the host never responded to phone calls or emails. I got a local phone number so we could get a hold of me. The Airbnb did not have, well it was advertised to have Wi-Fi but there was no Wi-Fi and it was cold and you could not turn on the heat and there were no extra blankets so I was not at all impressed with the Airbnb in Almiramar that we stayed at. All right, we did some work on the boat, took the cover off. I'm trying to remember exactly what we did 
we, we replaced a lot of light bulbs on the boat. Bill put a bilge alarm in. Bill Weeby also brought over with him three survival suits. Bill's a commercial fisherman, and he will not get on a boat without a survival suit. They've saved a lot of fishermen up in Alaska. Dave Harris bought a fishing pole for the boat and installed a fishing rod holder. We also installed the Iridium Go. We had to drill a hole through the deck and run the coax cable down into the cabin where it sits on the um, bulkhead aft of the stove. Uh, it's mounted to the bulkhead after the stove. It took a long time to actually get the Iridium Go to work. I'm not at all impressed with the Iridium Go system. I've talked to quite a few people since I got my Iridium Go, and everybody's going to Starlink. Everybody raves about how good Starlink works, so I think Iridium Go is not very long for the world. Everybody, is, at least the sailing community, seems to be going for Starlink. All right, we got the boat in the water on January 9th. We launched in the morning, and the winds were very strong from the west, blowing from west to east. They assigned us a dock on the south side of one of the keys. When I tried to make the turn into it, the wind was so strong I could not make the turn. The boat just took the boat. The boat just took the, uh, the wind, just took the boat, and forced it downwind, and we basically ended up Fortunately, there were no boats there. It was an empty dock. Side to this empty dock, the wind was just blowing the boat right onto the dock. We got some bumpers over, so no damage. But the laid moorings were underneath the boat. I tried to motor the boat, turn the boat into the wind, and then I laid mooring, got wrapped around the prop, and we were dead in the water. So I ended up having to jump overboard and clear the prop from the laid mooring line. It was cold water. Got in, got it done quickly, and then got out. So that was the first day we launched, just a fiasco. We did a bunch of shopping for the both, both the trip down to the Canary Islands, and then on to just, just a lot of provisioning for the boat. We filled up propane, got another bottle of propane. I added two additional fire extinguishers to the boat. And then we departed Almiramar the afternoon, around 6 in the evening, on January 10th. We had to wait till January 10th to leave because we had to get clearance papers from the port from the customs. So once we got those, we left late in the afternoon. Bill Wiebe drove into Malaga. We had the rental car. He was taking the rental car back. He drove into Malaga to get his bags, which finally had arrived at the airport. Dave Harris and I took the boat down the coast, basically motoring from Almiramar to Malaga. As we're approaching Malaga, I'm reading on the pilot, and they do not allow boats under... 20 meters, I think it's 20 meters, into the harbor at Malaga, so we had to continue on to another port just beyond Malaga, and again, the winds were, the winds picked up as we're approaching Malaga, and they are basically gale force winds as we pull into the port. We pull up to the fuel dock, we refuel, 
And we ask if we can just stay there. They let us stay there the night so we don't have to try to back in in this high wind. While Dave and I were pulling into the port, the jib let go. The roller furling on the jib had not been cleated off properly. And so I had to... Dave refurled up the jib and continued on. We got it furled up and basically side-tied to the dock. I can't remember the name of the harbor. Let's see if I can find it here. That was on January 11th that we pulled into this, this, the next harbor south of Malaga is where it is. I can look on a chart, but right now I don't know it off the top of my head. All right, Bill joined us finally on the boat after getting his luggage, and then we motored from this harbor to Estepona. Hold on, I'm going to look up the name of this harbor. Okay, the name of the harbor was Ben Almadina. B-E-N-A-L-M-A-D-E-N-A. All right, so on January 12th, we motored to Estepona. We arrived after it was dark. We did not refuel, uh, but it was dead calm when we arrived, so I was able to back into a slip. It was about 22 euros for the evening for the night in Estepona. I wanted to spend several days in Estepona, but the weather forecasts were not giving me much wiggle room. So the next day on January 13th, we motored on to Gibraltar and stayed at Ensenada de Salida, S-A-L-A-D-I-L-L-O, Salido, Salido, and that was 15 euros. And that's where we refueled before we headed down to Lanzarote. The next morning we're up early and we have a good opportunity to get out through the Straits of Gibraltar. We motor out through the Straits of Gibraltar. There's a current coming in and it took us a long time to get outside the Straits. We were basically, with the current coming against us, we were able to motor at about three knots. So we motored all day on January 14th, pretty much motored all the day on January 15th. Dave caught a huge tuna, probably a 50 to 60 pound tuna. It made a bloody mess in the cockpit, just a bloody mess in the cockpit. So we ate a lot of tuna, we froze a lot of tuna. I still have tuna in the locker right now, which we have to, to, uh, to work through. We only used about half of it. It was terrible to have to throw away half of this big yellowfin tuna. I've got pictures of it. It was a, it was a exciting. We could not bring it in with my rod and reel, and it literally broke the rod holder that David spent literally a day building and putting on the boat and mounting on the boat. As soon as that tuna hit the the rod, it broke the rod holder. The only thing keeping the rod on was the safety line we had tied on to the rod. Dave fought with this fish and fought with this fish and fought with this fish. The drag on the reel would not bring it in. We finally had to take the line and wrap it around the winch and winch the fish in. And then we gaffed it and uh, got it into the cockpit and then killed it in the cockpit. And it just was thick, thick, red viscous blood all over the cockpit and the death throes of the fish it splattered everywhere 
blood was everywhere in the cockpit on the on the uh, spray dodger on everything it was just the biggest we literally spent an hour and a half cleaning up the boat after we'd got caught this fish so i'm not in a hurry to catch another big tuna after that big mess or we got to find a better way of of killing it so it doesn't get blood all over the boat anyway on the 16th we sailed all night I was able to communicate with Kay. I got an email from Kay bringing me up to date on the problems we're having with the furnace at the ranch and the lousy snow situation. This is one of the snowiest years Utah's ever had for a long time. We had really, really rough winds for the next two days. Rough winds and very rough seas. The boat is giving me a lot of trouble. The engine on the boat is giving me a lot of trouble at this point in time. I have to bleed the fuel system every time before it starts I'm getting air bubbles in the fuel system so the boat engine will not start I before it'll start I have to go down and bleed it fortunately I'm very good at bleeding that engine now after four years of or actually three years of struggling with this same problem I thought we'd solved the problem the year before when Dave and Chris rebuilt the entire fuel system on the boat so I was still having problems uh, with that, we got into Lanzarote after two days of very, very windy conditions. Dave and Bill were very happy to get off the boat. We spent some time driving around the island. We rented a car and drove around Lanzarote. Glad we did. It was a very enjoyable drive. Dave apparently had called his wife Cindy and told her how terrible it was and it was hell. Out, it was hell out here, and they were praying for us and worried about us. That. But we were never in danger. It was uncomfortable as could be. But the winds were from our stern, just very strong winds. What was uncomfortable was the wave action was very uncomfortable. Nobody was getting any sleep because of the bouncing of the boat. But we were never in danger. We were just uncomfortable. So Dave and Bill depart, and I've got about four or five days by myself uh, in Lanzarote. Before they depart, we try to solve the fuel problem again we're back there and Bill and Dave have looked it over fairly carefully and we take one of the Raycor filters off and there's one really really bad old hose that's sort of cracking up and we assume that that's probably where the air is getting in is from the hose so we replace that hose and boom it starts up right away no problem at all and the next morning we try it again and boom it starts up right away no problem at all so I think we've got the problem solved. And the next crew arrives, which is uh, John Fluitt and Rob Dormant, both from the UK. And we again do a day of touring and then get on the boat and depart from Lanzarote. We're in uh, Marina, uh, Marina Porto Cal, 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 Caldera. I think that's the name of the port we stayed at. Uh, yeah, no, Porto Calero is the name of the port that I was at in Lanzarote. We refueled when we got down to Porto Calero with Dave Harris. We took 110 liters total. Uh, that's after taking two of the bottles from the uh, two of the five-gallon jugs for, that we had on the on the rail and had used that. So probably we used 110 liters altogether so we probably could have just barely squoze in with what we had in the uh, 
in the fuel tank without having to refuel. But it's but Bill did not want to leave without having a bunch of extra fuel on deck. So we have a total of 15 gallons of fuel in jerry cans that's not in the fuel tank. Bill also took measurements on the fuel tank so we'd know how far down, how much fuel we had based on how far down the measuring tape would be from the top of the tank. I've got that chart in my logbook and I will print it out and have it around in the future. Dave and Bill depart, John and Rob join me as we are motoring out. We've got a full fuel of tanks. We, Dave and Bill, we filled up when we got in here. The boat dies. And uh, probably we had an air bubble that we didn't get out of the system from when we changed the hose. But basically, fortunately, the wind was coming from the stern. We just put out the lapper and, and motored on out. Or not motor, we and sailed on out of the harbor and sailed all day long. And I go down and work on the engine and get it started again. It's just bleeding the fuel, bleeding the air out of the fuel system. We get it started again, but now I'm back to where I was before. I cannot get the engine started without bleeding the fuel lines. I'm getting air bubbles in there every time, also. I'm getting a lot of fuel in the engine pan. Now that indicates that there's a leak in the fuel line somewhere. And I would look and look and look and look and I could never find a leak anywhere. I could see it dripping off the bottom of the engine. There would be a lot of fuel in the oil pan, but I could not find the leak. Again, remember, we had replaced the entire fuel system the year before, two years before with Dave and Chris Harris on board. So none of those banjo bolts, none of those fittings were leaking. I could not figure it out. So we continue on. Rob and uh, John, we sail on down. Now this is going to be the next big leg of the trip. This is a 900-mile voyage from Lanzarote down to Cape Verde. And basically it was a pretty good sail. A few days of strong winds and a few days of light winds and a little bit of motoring, but... Really, nothing to, to, to write home about, no, nothing unusual. I'm communicating through Iridium with Kay off and on. I'm getting messages and emails through my Iridium email account. And the Iridium quits, just quits working. And this happened has happened so far three times. And I don't know why it suddenly quits, but it just quits getting satellite connections. So I found that what I have to do is unplug the external power, unplug the external battery, take the iridium off the bulkhead, unscrew the battery from the back, take the battery out, put the battery back in, and then it starts working again. Don't ask me why, but I'm not impressed with the iridium. I miss my family a lot. In the trips around Lanzarote, I stop at a wine museum. Just basically travel around the around the island a lot anyway rob and john we get down to cape verde and again when we're pulling into cape verde we the wind's blowing like crazy it's an uncomfortable harbor we go by the fuel dock and tie up next to the fuel dock pointed into the wind and they let us stay there that night 
basically they let us stay there the entire time. They got tired of asking us to move. We had to move as far away from the fuel dock as possible so there was room there. But we stayed there. The town is a pit. It is a third world country. Rob was accosted by somebody almost mugging him the first night we were there. Again, the second night he went over to another island. I'm not, I would never come back to Cape Verde again. The harbor was very uncomfortable. The, my starboard lifeline broke. My bumpers were hanging off of it, and there was so much movement in the, in the harbor, in the marina, that it broke my lifeline. I had to replace that. Fortunately, they had a chandlery there that could replace a lifeline, so I had to replace the lifelines. It was an uncomfortable marina to be in. We were there longer than I wanted to be, but we had to stay there until the next crew arrived, which is Mike McGuire. And Mike McGuire arrived. He's from Connecticut. We departed Cape Verde on the 10th at about 2.20 in the afternoon. Cape Verdean time, not GMT time. And we've been at sea two or three nights since then. Two nights. And what is today? Today's the 12th. We left on the 10th, the night of the 11th, the night of the 12th. So we've been on board two nights. We're making about a little about around 115, 120, 130 miles a day. It's been absolutely delightful sailing. Downwind sailing, not too much wind, not too little wind. We see a lot of flying fish off to the boat, off to the uh, sides of the boat as we're sailing through here. We're sailing through a lot of sargasso weed. Before Rob left the boat in Cape Verde, he went back. I said, okay, I'm going to run a line straight from my spare fuel tank in the lazarette directly to the engine. And Rob helped me run that line. But while Rob was running the line, he was in the engine compartment. And I was feeding the fuel line to him from the uh, from the lazarette. He said, "Boy, I'm seeing a lot of fuel right here at this this nipple, right on the fuel pump on the engine. I see a lot of fuel right here." And I said, "That could easily be it." So we ran the line from the spare tank to that fuel nipple. We took off the old fuel line that went from the Raycor filter down to the fuel pump on the engine and so I wanted to run it just right from the spare fuel tank to see if it ran fine there and it did the engine started fine several times so I think we figured out what the problem was so I just went ahead and put a new line right from the nipple on the fuel pump on the engine up to the Raycor filter replace that line and it has been working fine since then Finally, a problem that I've been dealing with for years has been solved, and it was, a, as usual, a simple fix. And that's it. I'm up to date for as it is right now. I'm not doing a very good job keeping the, uh, keeping the log up to date. But let me give you an approximate latitude and longitude position right now. All right, I'm just zooming in on my Navionics and putting it on top of this. Okay, we are 16 degrees, 7.113 minutes north, 28 degrees, 44 point, okay, start over again, 16 degrees, 
7.113 minutes north, 28 degrees, 44.139 minutes west. That's where we are as of approximately right now, which is, again, Sunday, January 12th, excuse me, Sunday, February 12th, 2023, at... Whatever time it is, GMT time. 12, 12.06 GMT time. And it's the Super Bowl. I've told Kay to, to uh, record the Super Bowl today for me. All right, I'll bring us up to date a little later on. The website for sailing in the Mediterranean and beyond is www.medsailor.com. Again, medsailor.com. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. I'm going to be selling my boat. It's got to the point where my family can't join me on the boat. I've got four grandkids, and uh, my boat is never going to be able to handle my family anymore. My wife is getting to the point where it's difficult for her to get in and out of the boat. She's 70 years old. I'm going to be 70 years old in July. And it's just a lot more work than I can handle at this point in time. It's becoming more and more difficult for me to do all the work on the boat that is required to keep the boat in the shape that I like to keep it in. So I put a web page on the website, which is medsailor.com, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R.com. There's another website called Medsailors. That's not my website. That's a, that's a charter website. But my website is medsailor.com, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R.com. And I put some details on my boat, which is up for sale. If you are interested in possibly buying my boat, I think the best way to really evaluate my boat is to actually sail my boat. And over the next two years, I plan on moving my boat up to Florida or maybe a little north of Florida. If I need to get out of the hurricane zone, maybe up to uh, South or North Carolina, wherever it is where I end up out of the hurricane zone and uh, leave it there to sell it. I'm going to next year I plan on moving it up to Puerto Rico. Currently it is in Trinidad, so I'm going to be doing the whole length of the Caribbean over the next two summers, no, excuse me, next two winters. Uh, I'll probably start sailing this next winter in January, maybe the middle of January and sail for two, maybe two and a half months working my way up to Puerto Rico. And so people that are interested in the boat, I will give the opportunity to join me for a period of time on that trip up. It will not be free. Basically, I will sell you an option to buy the boat. And if you decide to exercise that option, then the value of that option would be applied to the purchase of the boat. I'm thinking probably $2,000 for uh, sailing with me for a week so you can evaluate the boat. And that would be 
that $2,000 would be considered a, uh, an option, a purchase option on buying the boat at the listed price. If you choose to exercise that option, then the price of the option would be applied to the boat. If not, then you lose that. I don't want to have people joining me on the boat just to get a free trip. That's not what I want. If I, if I want to have people for, with a free trip, then it's going to be people I know or friends or families or clients. But if you're interested, people that are interested in my boat are a very specific group of people. It's a Lyle Hess design, Bristol Channel Cutter, hull number 71. The hull was built at Sam Morris Boat Company in California. I finished the boat myself. I took five years to finish it. I did a hell of a job finishing it. I'm proud of it. What sets my boat apart from almost all the other Bristol Channel Cutters that are for sale on the Internet is my bulwarks are all teak. The problem with Sam Moore's building his boats in, in Costa Mesa, California, was he used mahogany for the, uh, for the bulwarks. And he varnished them, and they look great until the varnish starts deteriorating, and you have to protect that wood. Well, with teak, you do not have to worry about it. Teak is designed to take anything you can throw at it. I've kept the boat when I'm not sailing the boat under a full cover for pretty much its entire life. So the bulwarks are all teak. You don't have to worry about sanding them. At one point in time, I put a sort of a semi-varnish on it called a Cetal, and... It started flaking, and I just let it go. I just let the sun burn it all off. And you just can still see little pieces of it around where the sun never hit. But I don't have to worry about painting my boat and maintaining those bulwarks. That by itself is probably worth at least $30,000 because teak is not cheap, and it's much more expensive now than it was when I built it. But it wasn't cheap when I built the boat. So that's a big, big part of my boat that makes it different from most other boats that you will see for sale. As I put an entire teak exterior, the only mahogany on my boat is the hatches, the forward hatch, the middle hatch, and uh, the, the frame around the cockpit hatch. They've been kept in decent shape, in good shape. In fact, I'm having them varnished, stripped down and varnished this winter while I'm away. Uh, the main portholes are unique. They're cast oval portholes with were cast custom cast from patterns which were loaned to me by Larry Party. I have a full wind vane, which is the uh, wind vane that Larry Party designed. I built it myself, but Mike Anderson, my friend in Newport Beach, makes these commercially. I built my own, and it works great. It sailed me all the way across the Atlantic. I hardly touched the tiller all the way across the Atlantic. If you want to be a true blue water sailor, you need to have this wind vane on your boat if you have a Bristol Channel cutter. And if you don't, uh, then you need to have some sort of auto helm or self-steering. So anyway, if you have an interest in this, be sure you reach out to me. Uh, you can write me at Franz number one at medsailor.com franz1 at medsailor.com and we can talk about it i haven't put together my schedule for next winter but i'm going to basically break it up into about six different legs so probably join me for about a week at a time 
and then move on. Then the next crew would join me and so forth on, on up to Puerto Rico where I, I'm hoping to leave the boat over the next summer. I guess it's not the winter. I'm summering the boat now. 